Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Yes, yes, welcome in. It's Downtown, the podcast, all right. Welcome to episode number 186. Rich Kimball here with Carrie Haskell. We're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Hey, just one guest on the show this week. One's all you need when you've got a certified comedy legend, a guy who's been making people laugh for more than five decades now. Coming out of the streets of the Chicago suburb of Harvey, Illinois, to the heights of spending 14 years on the road, opening up for Frank Sinatra. All of it chronicled in a wonderful memoir called Still Standing, My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage and Sinatra. Just consistently funny, a terrifically talented guy, actor, writer, but most of all, comedian, Tom Dreesen. Let's start, uh, Tom, by asking uh, how you're feeling in the book. You, you talk about your battles with cancer, but uh, you also had to deal with COVID as well. Yeah, I'm doing terrific. Uh, you know, I, I, um, uh, you know, I, I just came off of a, over a month and a half on the road doing shows all over the country, and and uh, you know, but I'm doing fine. You know, uh, the battle with cancer. You know, I, I won the battle temporarily, but I have to every six months. You know, it was three years ago they told me go home and put your affairs in order, mm-hmm. but I, I beat that, and uh, so now I have to go. Like I went every four months for a checkup. Every four months now I go every six months, you know, uh, and get a CT scan and, uh, and 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 just keep, you know, hoping that it's clear, you know. Well, we're glad to hear that. You you look great. Uh, I love the book, and I, I read it when it first came out, and then read it again to uh, get ready for our conversation today. I have to start by saying, as a, as a baseball fan, I especially respect the fact that you come from the same hometown as Lou Boudreau. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And you know, people, young people would not know that, but you, you know, because you're a baseball fan. But when I was growing up, and I and I mentioned in the book, you know, that uh, this was a hero from Harvey, Illinois, on the south side of Chicago, who not only in high school, as it took the high school that we went to, Thornton High School, he took them downstate three years in a row to the finals, and they won the state championship one year with his leadership. Went on then to University of Illinois, where he was captain of their basketball team and played all sports. And then was taken to the, drafted by the Cleveland Indians to play shortstop. And at age 24, he played shortstop and managed at the same time, player manager at age 24, and hit 368 that year and only struck out eight times all year long. This was a phenom. He's in baseball's Hall of Fame, you know. Yeah, we uh, recently talked to a, an author who wrote a book about the 1948 Indians. Of course, Lou Boudreau plays a huge part in that story. Yeah, and, and for me, you know the story uh, that I was eight years old, uh, uh, nine, eight or nine years old. I was selling newspapers all over the, uh, you know, the, the community that I lived in, Harvey, Illinois, and all the horns were blowing, and people people were coming out of the stores, and cars were coming up, and and, and I finally asked one of the elders what's going on. He said it's Lubadro Day, and I said Lubadro. He said Tommy Lubadro is from Harvey, and he mentioned all the things I just told you, and now he's come home, and they won the World Series. And the whole town's going to greet him. So I sold all my newspapers and I went to the corner of 155th Street in Harvey, where the Elks Club was. On the other side of the street is the post office. And I sold newspapers out in that corner. And, and I got my papers all sold and watched this guy come out of the Elks Club, Lou Boudreau, and people were cheering him. And he had all these other stars with him, baseball players and stuff. And they all jumped in the car and he waved goodbye to the crowd. And, and, and he went on down the Thornton Field where he was going to sign autographs. 
And I was walking home that day and I was saying, wow, somebody from Harvey, Illinois is famous. Wow. And I, like little boys do, I fantasize maybe one day they'd have a parade for me. And, I, and you know, like little boys, I'm picturing the band and, and all the people cheering. And in August 22nd, 1992, I went back to Harvey, Illinois, to that corner, 155th Street, and they named that street Dreesen Street, Tom Dreesen Street. And the guy who introduced me to the crowd was Lou Boudreau. That's incredible. It's, it's such an amazing story. Now, in reading about your childhood, uh, would I be far off if I suggested that Harvey, Illinois, back when you were a kid, maybe had more taverns per capita than any town in America? <laughs> Close. Yeah. yeah. We had 30, ironically, you had like 36 different type churches and 36 or 38 taverns in the town, you know, but it was a, a, a blue collar town of steel mills and, and, you know, Perfection Gear and Whiting Corporation and Alice Chalmer and the Buda Corporation and, and uh, um, Ingalls and Shepard and, and Allied Tube and uh, Allied Steel and all these factories that all these people worked in. So around the factories were all these taverns. Where in those days, most men didn't go to a bank. They went to the corner tavern and cashed their check there and then bought a round of drinks for all the boys and all that kind of crap. So it was, it was a, you know, the tavern was the, when I grew up, it was the social center of the neighborhood. You'd go there to find out, did, did Rich get the job? Did, 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 did uh, Susan have the baby? Uh, you know, it was a social center where on Fridays they had fish fries and, and, uh, and, and families would come to the bars, you know, and that kind of stuff, you know. Well, you had a, a tough upbringing. You were one of eight kids. Uh, your dad was an alcoholic. Your, your mom eventually uh, was working at a bar and then eventually would join him uh, in the drinking. And the, so many just heartbreaking stories in the book, the story about your dad pawning your watch to, to buy some booze, but, but you forgave him. How did you, how did you come to accept your parents for being who they were? Well, you know, when you're a little boy, I mean, I, I love my parents and, and, you know, you, you, you learn to at some point, um, detest the sickness, but, but love the human being, you know, you, uh, you know, at, 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 first of all, Everybody in the neighborhood in those days, I say everybody, I'm exaggerating, but it seemed like everybody drank. I grew up around drinkers and smokers. These were neighborhood people. And so it's drinking, you know, it just seemed normal that after a day's work, you stop in a corner tavern and have a, beer, a couple of beers with the boys. That seemed normal to me, that you rewarded yourself with a couple of beers. And, and it was only years later that you realize, you know, what, what a horrible disease this is. You know, and, and, uh, and, and you know, I, I went to Catholic school. You know, I was an altar boy. Uh, I was taught forgiveness. I was taught, uh, you know, those kind of things. And I don't regret any of it. You know, I really don't. You know, I, I and I and I, I never resented my dad because he was alcoholic. Uh, I just, you know, it's something you you lived with. You learn to accept. You know, well, as, like, as you to accept as as reality. Right. You know, you were uh, you were a kid who spent a lot of time on the streets. Did the Navy? In, in a sense, save you from a, a worse fate? No doubt about it. No doubt about it. I was 16 years old. I dropped out of high school. I, you know, I had holes in my shoes, raggedy clothes, going to school every day. I ran with a real tough crowd, a, a bunch of tough street guys in street fights, and nothing I'm proud of. You know, I, I, I had my nose broke a couple times. <laughs> when I was 17, I went to the Navy, and I got a high school diploma from the Navy, and I went to junior college nights. I started reading every positive mental attitude book I could find. Every book on the powers of the mind. I read literally over a hundred of those kind of books, and and uh, and even now I'm a motivation speaker on four subjects: perception, visualization, self-talk, and develop a sense of humor. 
but the Navy, going into the Navy, all of a sudden, I was equal to everybody around me. I They shaved your head, and everybody, we wore the same clothes. And from that point on, you were based, you were judged upon by your merits, you know, by by your efforts. And and so it, it did change my life. And, and not only that, I had three squares a day. I never had food like that. I had a show. I grew up in a shack with no bathtub and no shower, no hot water. You know, uh, you know, so we, we had to, when I went in the Navy, you know, I, I you know, I, I could stay in a shower as long as I want, but as much hot water flow on me. I had more than one pair of shoes. I thought I was in heaven, you know. <laughs> We're talking with Tom Dreesen here on downtown. Now you got out of the Navy, came back home and you explain in your book that uh, you, you floated around to just about every job imaginable for about seven years, even found out that you were pretty good at selling insurance to people. Well, that was my final job before I went into show business. But I, when I came out of the Navy, I, I got married right away. I had children coming in and I wandered aimlessly. I was going from job to job. I was a private detective. I was a construction worker. I wheeled concrete for sidewalks, for basements. I ended up loading trucks. I became a teamster, loading trucks for a trucking company. And then I dropped my card and I became management. You know, and, uh, and and all sorts of odd jobs. Bartender, always a part-time bartender. Uh, and then I started selling life insurance, and I was very successful at life insurance. My first year selling life insurance for Columbus Mutual Life Insurance, uh, I was a member of the Million Dollar Roundtable. And the second year, I quit and went into show business. <laughs> and the well, president of the company flew in from Columbus, Ohio, flew in Chicago and said, I've never done this for any agent ever. But I cannot believe that you would leave, you've got such a great foundation in this business with vested renewals, and that you're going to leave that to go into such a precarious business as show business, you know, uh, and, and I was going into show business with my black friend, Tim Reed, as America's first black and white comedy team. So not only was it was going into show business tough, but being the first black and white comedy team was also a bit of a, of, of a, a you know, a, a struggle, you know. And you met Tim Reed through the JCs, and, and you guys originally began going into schools and, and speaking to students. I've uh, been some of those same motivational talks that you do today. When did you guys decide that maybe we could make a go in the world of stand-up comedy? It was a drug education program that I had written teaching great eighth graders the ills of drug abuse with humor. It was a concept I had about making the kids laugh, playing records, and, and songs and stuff and getting their attention and then planting the seeds of the ills of drug abuse. And the program, we ran it as a JC project because we were JCs and the program became number one in 50 states and in 22 foreign countries, the JCs through their publications as a model program on how to teach drug education at an eighth grade level. Cause they weren't teaching drug education in those days at a college or a high school level, let alone in elementary school. So one day a little eighth grade girl walking out of the classroom said, you guys are funny. You ought to become a comedy team. And the thought of a black-white comedy team intrigued us because no one had ever done that before. And and, and we, the next day, we start talking about it. Would you do it? I'd do it. I'll try it if you'll try it. But there were no comedy clubs in America in those days. So we had to go to nightclubs. So we ended up start working all black clubs in the north and the south, north side of Chicago and south side of Chicago, and then all over the country, what they affectionately called the Chitlin Circuit, black-owned, black-operated nightclubs where I'd be the only white guy within miles. And then we worked all white nightclubs too, but we paid dues like no other act ever had to pay in show business. You know, it was an amazing journey. We're best of friends today. And it's, I, his children call me Uncle Tom, which is <laughs> funny. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> was America ready back then for a black and white comedy team? 
they aren't ready for it now, I don't think. No, probably not. <laughs> but it, 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 that speaks volumes, doesn't it, Rich? Yeah. We were America's first black and white comedy team. That was 45 years ago when the team split up. 51 years ago when we started. And in those days, they were saying, you know, we need more. We need more uh, uh, race relations. We need more discourse among the races. We need more discourse among the races. And here, 51 years later, you know what they're saying? We need more discourse among the races. <laughs> more things change, the more they stay the same. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, we wrote a book years ago, Tim and I, right. called Tim and Tom, an American Comedy in Black and White. And now Netflix, and a lot of people are interested in maybe doing a mini-series of our life. Uh, because what we went through, and, and also the joy that we went through, we had a lot of fun. You know, and and uh, and and I, and I would leave my Tim and Tom years with this. I can't tell you how many times that Tim and I would do a show. We went anywhere there was racial tension, high schools, colleges, prisons. We did 11 prisons in one year. We did the county jail in Chicago three times in one year. Anywhere there was racial tension, we went. We didn't preach. We just went to make people laugh. I can't tell you how many times after our performance, a young black person would come up and say, a young black guy would say, you know, I have a white friend that I'd like to reach out to, but if I do, the brothers are going to wear me out. <laughs> but after watching you and Tim, I'm going to reach out to my white friend. Then a white kid would come up and say, you know, I have a black friend that I really like, but the white guy's going to call me names. But after watching you and Tim, I'm, I'm going to reach out to my black friend. That meant more to us than anything that we could ever accomplish in show business. Uh, Tim went on to pursue acting, and of course, with, with great success, starting with WKRP in Cincinnati. And you decided to go it alone uh, and, and hit the West Coast. Can you can you tell some of the story of your audition at the Comedy Store with Mitzi Shore? Well, when I first got out of here, I thought, I, I told my wife at that time, my ex-wife now, I can't remember her name. Oh, yeah, plaintiff. Um, <laughs> She hated show business, and I don't blame her. She married a guy who was not in show business. She married. I was, she wanted a guy like her dad who worked in a factory for 40 years and never missed a day and had a check every Friday on the table. So I don't blame her. But I had the bug. I wanted to stay in show business. She thought I was coming out to the West Coast for just a couple of weeks, and it was over, and I was coming home to get a job in the factory and give up this crazy dream of mine. You know. So, But I get out to the West Coast, and I, I figured I'd get discovered right away. Well, I didn't realize it took me almost a month to get on at the comedy store. I ended up having no money and I slept in an old Nash Rambler. It wasn't my car. It was up on blocks mm. where the front seat came down and you could sleep in the car. And for like a month, I hitchhiked to the comedy store every day, every evening, begging to work for free. And finally got an audition where Mitzi Shore, the owner of the comedy store, would watch me. She'd give you like five minutes. And if she liked you, she put you on the regular schedule. If she didn't like you, it's back to Harvey, Illinois, or Toledo, or wherever you're from. But I got lucky that night, and I scored. And she said, you know, well, you, you, you see, have stage presence. I'll put you on the regular schedule. And that's got me going. And then I started pestering the Tonight Show to come and see me. You know, It was a, such a fertile time in, in the comedy industry with the growth, really, of comedy clubs. And uh, you ran into so many characters along the way, uh, some who had become very good friends, including the gentleman who wrote the foreword to your book, David Letterman, and, and you make a great insight about David and his his Midwestern style, his Midwestern ethics, and, and why that played so well in late-night TV and, and why so many of those kings of late-night had a similar background. Yeah, I, I agree with that. By the way, to digress a moment, I was going on stage at the Comedy Store every night with all these unknown comedians, 
Elaine Boozler, Jay Leno, David Letterman, Robin Williams, Gallagher, Michael Keaton, and the girl waiting tables was Deborah Winger, you know. So <laughs> wow. I, I don't know whatever happened to any of those, but I'm on your show right now. There you pal. Go. <laughs> but going back to my, my theory, David, when I watch David Letterman on stage, and he's my dearest friend in the whole world, I, I love him he's like a brother, you know. He, um, we are total opposites. That we are even friends is it's amazing because we are opposite in almost everything, but but we we connected as two young guys and and uh, became very good friends. But at the comedy show, he was very funny to me as a stand-up comedian, and he could deal with hecklers as good as anybody. He could destroy hecklers. You know, David was never physically combative, but intellectually he'd cut you to ribbons. You know, so when I saw him on he was never happy as a stand-up comedian, but when I saw him on a TV studio. You he you knew he came home, you know you you could tell that was uh, where he belonged on television. You know, um, you tell a great story in the book about Robin Williams borrowing, we'll say, one of your jokes, and and he had that reputation. But but as you point out, sometimes his mind worked so fast that he would just he would assimilate everything and wasn't always aware of what he was doing. It, there was never was or never will be. I don't think again a comedian like Robin Williams. People tried to compare him to Jonathan Winters, and I knew Jonathan, and Jonathan was funny, but Robin's brain, there was nothing like it in comedy. Robin could not do what I did, go on The Tonight Show and do 61 appearances with a five-minute set. Robin couldn't do five-minute sets, but he could kill you in an hour. You know, he, he could do hour after hour after hour. His brain was always working overtime. He was brilliant. He was the sweetest, kindest, most gentle human being I ever met in my life. In uh, uh, a tragedy that, that he's no longer with us because he was genius. True. See, you know, talent is something you possess. Genius is something that possesses you. Mm. We're talking with Tom Dreesen here on Downtown. Younger people today, I don't, I don't think have an appreciation for what it meant to get that gig on the Tonight Show and when that. When that finally happened for you, you knew that it would open doors everywhere for you. Do you remember what it felt like standing behind those curtains, waiting for them to part and be introduced by Johnny? In 1975, wherever you went in America, people say, what do you do for a living? You say, I'm a stand-up comedian. The next question out of their mouth was, oh, yeah? You ever been on Johnny Carson? If you hadn't been on Johnny Carson in the eyes of America, you just weren't a comedian. You might want to be. You might going to be, but you weren't one now. And so the, Freddie Prince did one appearance on The Tonight Show, and the next day he got a sitcom. His whole life changed. We all knew that was the launching pad. 26 and a half million people watched that show every night. One appearance, your life would change. So now, all, when I finally got The Tonight Show, it took almost a year to get them to come and see me, and I finally passed the audition. I auditioned that night with a new kid named Billy Crystal. Again, <laughs> I, don't know whatever, I don't know whatever happened to him, but look, look where I'm at. <laughs> Anyhow, he, he, you know, when you finally got there to that Tonight Show, this was a moment, buddy. You know, and, and I got there, they put you in makeup, and then they put you up to take you up to your dressing room. Then they bring you downstairs to the green room, and you wait because you're on in moments. And they ran out of time, and they bumped me. And then they bumped me the following week. And then they bumped me the following week. The fourth week I went there, I'm in the makeup room, and Fred DeCordova, the producer, came in the makeup room. He said, I got bad news for you. I said, what? He said, you're going on tonight. <laughs> <laughs> now you get a lump in your throat the size of a grapefruit, you know. And now it's that moment. They walk you that long walk behind that curtain. The talent coordinator's taking you. 
all the stagehands know it's your first time. They look at each other and they whisper, it's his first time, it's his first time. You know? The pressure is enormous. They put me behind the curtain and they're in commercial break. Doc Sevenson is playing music while they're in commercial break. The coordinator leaves you alone and you're waiting behind that curtain. And now not all the talent coordinators watch that show. All the bookers from Las Vegas, managers, agents, they all watch that show looking for the new new hot talent, you know. Not only that, my mother had everybody back in Harvey, Illinois watching, so if I bomb, I couldn't even go back home, you know. <laughs> now I'm behind that curtain, and the music stops, and your heart stops because you're coming out in a commercial break. All the lights light up in the curtain in front of you, and you hear Johnny say, we're back now, and I'm glad you're in such a good mood tonight because my next guest is making his first appearance on The Tonight Show. Would you welcome, please? Tom Dreesen. Now they open up that curtain. The one line Johnny said, I'm glad you're in such a good mood tonight. He set the tone. You know, this is his first time. They open that curtain, you walk out, you can't see the audience. All you see is bright lights. You're like in an operating room. There's a mark on the floor you hit. And you hit that mark and the people are applauding. And, Whoa, I got that first joke out and it got a laugh. I got that second joke out. It got a laugh. Now I got that third joke and I'm on a roll. I got a third joke, I got applause. Fourth joke, Johnny and Ed McMahon are laughing behind me. Now I'm on a roll. I got eight applause, big reaction. I closed with, I said, you've been a wonderful audience. Show business is, is a tough life. So if you like me, just if you like me and you're Protestant, say a prayer. If you're Catholic, light a candle. If you're Jewish, somebody in your family owns a nightclub. Tell them about me, will you please? <laughs> and, and I said, good night. And I go through the curtain. And the coordinator come running around the corner, Craig Tennis, the coordinator said, Tom, go back, go back. I said, go back and talk to Johnny. He said, no, no, go, don't go back and talk to Johnny, just go back. And they call me back for a second bow to the curtain. And Johnny gave me that little circle, and like that. And, and I never stopped working from that day on. I've done, I did 61 appearances on that Tonight Show, as I said. And I was doing Dinosaur, and Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas, Johnny Carson, Midnight Special, Rock Concert, Soul Train, American Bandstand. I was doing Hollywood Squares, $20,000 pyramid. I was touring with Sammy Davis Jr. My whole life changed from that one appearance. Yeah, can you talk about that, your time with, with Sammy Davis Jr.? What did he What did he see in you, and, and why did you know that would be a good combination? I, you know, I, I, I knew, I had this feeling if I could do, he had a TV show called Sammy and Company, and I bugged my agent, Debbie, geez, what's your lesson? Anyhow, I, I begged her. She was an agent at William Morris, you know. And uh, I begged her to get me on that show. And and she did. And, and I, I thought, see, I was doing routines about growing up in a predominantly black neighborhood, which I did. I played basketball on an all-black basketball team. I played football on, on an all-black football team. Debbie Miller was her name. Forgive me, Debbie, if you watch this. Anyhow, uh, but so I was doing routines about growing up and being the only white kid in an all-black situation. And and I, I just had a feeling Sammy would love that routine. And he did. And, and when I did the routine, he... He took me over to the couch and he told me, I'm going to take you on the road with me, you know, and, uh, and he did for three years. And he, and he gave you some great opportunities. I, I love the story in the book. Uh, and I, I remember if it was, a, I think, a late night show, perhaps, but but he had you go on. He went on first and essentially opened for you. Well, here's what happened. He We were touring all over the country. He said to me, have you ever worked Las Vegas? And I said, no. He said, well, you opened there in January with me. Wow, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm opening in Las Vegas at Caesars Palace with Sammy Davis Jr. But opening night, first of all, they serve food in those days. Well, opening night, all the critics are in that room. Variety Magazine, Hollywood Reporter, 
all the Las Vegas newspapers, critics from all of the newspapers around the country, wire services. Well, they serve food. Well, a comedian dies of death. First of all, Caesar's Palace is the toughest room to work in all of Las Vegas because it has a high ceiling. Comedians like a low ceiling. You know, I was under contract in nine hotels there. I always like the Sands Hotel, the Riviera, the Golden Nugget. They had the, the Desert Inn. They had low ceilings. Laughter is sound. It hits a ceiling and comes at you. So it was, you know, it was like you'd fill the room with laughter. But when people are eating, they either have to stop eating the laugh or stop laughing to eat. And waiters and waitresses interrupting everything, picking up, you know, dishes and, and hauling food in and out. Sammy knew that. He said to, to he told me, he said, Tommy, you'll bomb. You know, you need to get great reviews your first time here and they'll keep hiring you back. He said, I'll go out and I'll do three or four songs. I'll get them quieted down and then I'll bring you out. Then when you do whatever you do, then I'll come back and close the show with, with whatever time we have left. He, when he walked out first, the waiters and waitresses job is to get that food out of there before the headliner comes out. When they saw Sammy walk out, they were pulling food away from people who haven't even started eating yet, you know. <laughs> and and he'd, he'd do four songs, and he'd introduce me with the most wonderful introduction. He'd say, ladies and gentlemen, you've been with me through the tough times and the good times. You've always stuck with me. And I, I feel like my audience is family. And when you have family that's that so much behind you, you want to do something for them. Like maybe bring them a gift. I got a gift for you. I saw this kid on my show. You're going to love him. And I'd be in the wings saying, Sammy. Don't make too big an introduction here, you know? and you can't follow a big introduction. But but he would introduce me every night, and I'd go out and I'd say, "Ladies and gentlemen, I always dreamed that one day I'd work Las Vegas, and I always dreamed it might be Caesar's Palace, but I never dreamed that Sammy Davis Jr. would be my opening act." You know? <laughs> Sammy would love that line. You know? <laughs> Talking with Tom Dreesen here on Downtown the Podcast. We'll take a brief pause for a word from Cross Insurance when we come back. The chairman of the board comes calling. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Tom Dreesen did 14 years on the road with Frank Sinatra. We pick up our conversation with Tom right there. You got the opportunity of a lifetime to tour with Frank Sinatra. And I was I was very interested to learn that there were people who told you, yeah, it's a great gig, but don't stay too long with him. Right. Well, you know, I was, I toured with, you know, Tony Orlando Don and Mac Davis and Frankie Avalon and James Darren and, and Gladys Knight and the Pips and Smokey Robinson and I toured together for years and then finally got the chance to tour with Frank Sinatra. But my manager and my agent both said, look, it's a good gig, uh, but you can never become a star in the shadow of such a great star. And that's true. I won't deny that. But I, when I was on my hands and knees in bars in Harvey, Illinois, Shining Shoes, Frank Sinatra was on every jukebox and every bar. And now I was flying in his private jet with him. You know, I, when I came on the service and I was a bartender, 
he'd be on the jukebox and he'd come fly with me. Let's fly away. And my buddies would say, can you imagine that? What it would be like flying with Frank Sinatra and Sammy and Dean and all. And here I was doing that. I was flying with Frank in his private jet, doing 45 to 50 cities a year in front of 20,000 people, 40,000 in Hawaii. And I just, and staying in Frank's home six times a year, hanging out with him. I, I knew it was the end of an era. And I, I, I turned down more sitcoms than most comedians get offered in a lifetime in the years I toured with Frank. But I knew it was in the era, and I wanted to be a part of that. And I also loved him. He, he became a real close friend. You know, I was a pallbearer at his funeral. I spoke at his funeral. And you clicked for a number of reasons, I'm not the least of which is that he was, at heart, a street kid from Hoboken, and you were a street kid from Harvey. That's right. And that's how we were. You know, when we were alone in the car, he stayed up till dawn. He never went to bed till the sun came up. So when I stayed at his compound down in Rancho Mirage, Sometimes he'd come and get me at 3.30 in the morning. He said, let's take a ride, Tommy. We'd ride till the sun came up. And when we got alone in the car, you know, David Letterman used to say to me, what are you talking to Frank Sinatra about? When you're alone with Frank Sinatra, what do you talk about? And I said, we talk about you, David. And, and he, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, we, but I did a couple of times. I talked to Frank about my friendship with Dave. And uh, but anyhow, we, when we got in the car alone, he was a kid from Hoboken. I was a kid from Harvey. He talked about his childhood. I talked about mine. You know, and uh, our likes and dislikes, and you know, we had more in common that we, that, that we, than, than, we re than I realized. You know, except for his extraordinary talent. You know, and everything in common there. You know. Did he become, in a sense, a surrogate father to you? In a lot of ways, when I first went on tour with him, he was the boss of that tour. He knew his job, and you better know yours because he, he, his show was the most important thing. You don't goof off the show. But then later we became like buddies. He was the boss. And later we became like buddies. We'd hang out, you know, even though there was a great age difference. But then toward the end of his life, he was more like a father to me where he'd give me fatherly advice, you know, about. And, and I, I would take some of my problems to him and ask for his advice. You know. And I, I love there are so many great stories about uh, you and, and Frank. Uh, I love the story of you getting him to take your picture. Yeah, <laughs> well. I do this, and I have a one-man show I'm doing called The Man Who Made Sinatra Laugh, and I do it in cities all around the country. Part of it is telling that story, how close we became. Again, with Frank, you didn't fool with the show. You know, you want to party all night long, he'll do that with you. You want to have some fun, hang out, but when comes showtime, we, we do the show and do it professionally. But every night in the casinos in Vegas, Tahoe, Reno, Atlantic City, when when I finished my show, like in the big arenas, sometimes I'd finish my show and they'd take an intermission and then Frank would come out. But in the, in the casinos, I would say, good night, everybody. Whatever my last joke was, good night, everybody. And I would exit stage right and Frank would enter stage right. So we'd crisscross and people would be applauding me off and then cheering him on. And he'd get to the microphone with the band vamping, you know, bow, 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 bow. And while they're vamping, he'd say, Tommy Dreesen, ladies and gentlemen, Tommy, come back out and take another bow. And I'd take what they call a half bow. I'd go halfway to him and I'd bow to the audience and I'd bow to him and you know, say hello to you know, give him the thumbs up, whatever. And this particular night, after 10 years of touring with him, a stagehand had a little small camera and wanted a picture with me. And I, and I said, can I use your camera? She asked, so I kept it on me. When I walked back out on stage this night for the first time in, that was, I'd been with him 10 years at that time, we were together 14 years, but about the 10th year, this night I walked straight up to him. And his eyes got big, you know, normally I take a half bow. And Frank Jr., his son was conducting, 
And Frank Jr. is a very serious kid, you know. And Frank Jr., you know, uh, Frank Jr. looked his eyes at speak, what the hell are you doing? And he's vamping the band, bam, bam, bam. And Frank said, what are you doing? I said, can I ask you a favor? He said, I'm trying to start my show. I said, could I get a picture? He said, do you believe this? He said to the audience, I'm trying to start the show. This guy wants a picture. He said, okay. And I handed him the camera. I said, get a picture of me and Frank Jr., will you please? <laughs> and 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 I'm going to send you pictures that you can put on this broadcast if you want it, but uh, of that incident, you know. But it but he laughed, and it shows you what a great relationship we had that he would do that for me, you know. No. I don't think we can. Although we're recording, maybe we can get away with it. I, I wish you could tell the Jilly Rizzo, Widow Johnson story, <laughs> because that was so great. Jilly Rizzo was Frank Sinatra's bodyguard and a street guy. And in, in the digress, he had a glass eye because he had it knocked out in a fight. He was a tough guy. Sammy Davis Jr., of course, had a glass eye. And so every Christmas, Frank would buy a set of binoculars, saw him in half and send one to Jilly and one to Sammy, you know. <laughs> I always, they roasted Jilly one night in, in the, at the Friars Club, and I was on the dais. So I told the audience, I said, before Jilly met Frank Sinatra, he worked construction. Before Jilly owned the bar that he had, and he worked construction. And one day, a concrete truck rolled over sideways and crushed one of the workers, a, a guy named Ed Johnson, and, and, the, the, and, he, and the guy died. And somebody had to go tell the widow, I mean, his wife, that, that um, that he had passed, that he had killed. And they said, we need somebody with tack. So they sent Jilly, and of course, Jilly, everybody laughed because <laughs> he had street guy tack, you know. So Jilly knocked on the door, and a woman came to the door, and Jilly, she opened the door, and Jilly said, are you the widow Johnson? And she said, my name is Johnson, but I'm not a widow. He said, the hell you ain't. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you cleaned that up a little bit for us. Thank you. <laughs> We're talking with Tom Dreesen here on downtown. Uh, Tom's book, by the way, is wonderful. It's called Still Standing, My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage and Sinatra. And you learn a lot about your family in, in your journey as well. And, uh, well, I, I guess it could be summed up by what you wrote, which is that you, you felt Italian before you knew you were Italian, uh, you learned that the person that you thought was your father was not your father. Well, when I was growing up, all the taverns I'd go to, I'd change shoes in all the taverns in my neighborhood. The last tavern I went to was owned by Frank Polizzi, my mother's brother-in-law, my uncle by marriage. So I, it was my uncle Frank, but he was my, my mom's sister's husband. And my mother was a bartender in that bar. So I'd go to his tavern last. So, because that's where my mom was. And also I'd wait for all the shifts in the factories to change and I'd go back out to the taverns again. And Frank Polizzi would be behind the bar telling jokes every night. He was a great joke teller and I emulated him. I loved him. He was, he was my favorite uncle for sure. And um, he also, um, he, I would do his jokes, many that should not be told on a Catholic school playground, you know, but, <laughs> but I love the guy. He had two sons. And I looked just like his sons. You know, we really, there was no doubt that, that we really looked a lot alike. But I didn't look like my older brother, Glenn, or my, my, my brother and sisters. I looked like his sons, you know. And people would say to me everywhere I go, hey, Polizzi, how you doing? I'd say, my name isn't Polizzi, my name is Breeson. That's my uncle. Oh, oh. And I think they thought it was like my mom's sister's brother, you know. Uh, I mean, my mom's uh, brother, you know. And so, anyhow, but 
about the time I start realizing where babies came from, when I came of age, like 13 years old, start realizing where babies came from, I didn't want to believe my mom and dad did this, let alone my mom and my uncle. You know, so I kind of had this, and, and I would go to Italian, there was Italian carnivals in the neighborhood at St. Donata's over in Blue Island next to Harvey. And that, that feeling, you know, dun, 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 I, I just felt like I belonged there, you know. It's something about that. And I was so affectionate to him. I, I mean, he was he was my uncle, and I loved him, and I was real proud of him because he, he was a tough guy who didn't take any lip from anybody, you know. And um, anyhow, long story short, one day I had a long, I, I started thinking that maybe could this be possible, you know. And when I got enough courage when I was about 15, to go confront him. And I went for a long walk with him and I said, I need to talk to you. And and I, he said, what is it? I said, I, I think you're my father. And he stopped and he said, what on earth makes you think that? I said, because I don't look like any of my brothers and sisters and I look just like your two sons, Don and Buzz, you know. He said, he walked a little bit further and he said, well, it's true. And you can go tell the world, it would ruin your mom and dad's marriage and mine but you are entitled to that. And I said, I don't want to do that. I just needed to know. And then I got distant from, I, I, I felt uncomfortable around them. And then I went in the Navy. When I came home on leave a couple of times, we got together and by that time I was a man and I really didn't care who planted the seed at that time, you know. Uh, and we, we stayed real close. We kept it our secret for many, many, many years, you know. And, uh, and then finally, now everybody knows, you know. You also write very powerfully about your sister, Darlene, and how did she inspire you along the way? She was 18 months older than me, and it, I can't remember the moment. I can remember as far back as I can. She was holding my hand helped me across the street. She was my big sister, and she was the sweetest, kindest, most loving human being I ever met in my life. If, if, there's no, if Darlene's not in heaven, there is no heaven. You know? She'd go to church six days a week. Um, you know, She'd help me sell newspapers on the corner with my brother. She was. She would watch over my brothers and sisters. My mom and dad were out drinking, and my mom worked in a bar late at night. Poor Darlene didn't have a childhood at all, and um, she just was the sweetest, most loving girl. And she got in her twenties, got up, moved away, and was starting to live her life. And she comes up with multiple sclerosis, and it took her from a cane to a walker to a wheelchair uh, to bedridden. And um, and then I, I I just decided one day I wanted to do something to show her how much I love her how much the world cares about people like her who have MS. So I started running 26 miles every year, and I called it 26 miles for Darlene. And people would pledge money for every mile I run, and the proceeds would go to trying to find a cure for MS. And then then I uh, I get all my celebrity friends to come to Chicago with me, fly into Chicago with me, and, and help me uh, run. They'd run a mile with me, two miles a block. Smokey Robinson's the only one who ran all 26 miles with me. It's a it's a remarkable story there, and uh, he also uh, spun that off into a golf tournament uh, for many years as well, taking advantage of another one of your passions. Well, the other thing, after a while, I, I, I could raise just as much money playing golf as I could running twenty six miles. I said, <laughs> I, after three years of running, you know, and I caddied when I was a boy. You know, again, I had to help feed my brothers and sisters when I was growing up, so I sold newspapers, I set pins and bowling alleys, I caddied in the summertime. I uh, had a paper route, you know, and all to help feed my brothers and sisters, and none of this do I regret. But being a little boy in a tavern neighborhood in steel mills and factories, and then going out to a golf course, you know, or, or a private club where all these members were very affluent people, and it was a whole new world for me. 
I always dreamed when I was growing up that one day maybe I'd be a bartender or own a tavern because that's where my dad spent all of his money. And I thought, that's the epitome of success. But then when I got out in that golf course, caddying for Mr. Florsheim, you know, all these very successful men and women, um, I started thinking maybe I could be more than just a tavern owner or a bartender, you know. And so I understand when a ghetto kid wants to grow up to become a pimp or a drug pusher, that's the only successful male he's seen in that environment, you know. So you sometimes don't think beyond that world. And once I went to the golf course at Ravislow Country Club in Homewood, Illinois, that's where I started caddying for lawyers and doctors and very successful businessmen, you know, and, and women that were, they, they were, they treated you like a son and not like a servant. You know? Now uh, I'm up here in Red Sox country. I remember what it felt like back in 2004, ending that long stretch. You write so well about what it was like as a Cubs fan in 2016, when you finally got that monkey off your back. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I can't even describe all the jokes I used to do about the Cubs, all the, the razzing you take about being a Cub fan. <clears throat> and when they finally won, uh, you know, my, my, I was doing a, a gig in Palm Springs in Rancho Mirage and staying at the uh, JW Marriott down there in Palm Desert, working a corporate date. And I hurried off stage that night and went up. I went to Wrigley Field, uh, you know, the, the games they had at Wrigley Field. I went three times to Wrigley Field. And, and uh, then in the last game with Cleveland, I was doing the show. And I, I, when I watched them win, my phone started ringing. And it was my daughter. I said, I can't talk. All my life, I've been making a living talking. I, would, I could not talk. I was so choked up. I thought of all the Cub fans I knew that are no longer with us that would have loved this day, that deserved to see that day. You know, uh, It was very emotional. It really was. Mm. Uh, Tom, you mentioned you've been out on tour. You're still doing stand-up and, and doing it better than anybody out there. We've talked to so many comics who have, uh, like you, have done other things, uh, whether it's acting or, or writing, but they always seem to come back to stand-up. What is it about being out on that stage by yourself that, that gives you a charge like nothing else you can do? Well, I'm, I'm a stand-up comedian, first, last, and always. Am I a writer? Yes, I've written. You know, I'm an author. You know, I've written a couple of books. I, I, I MC major corporate events. I, I'm a motivational speaker. I'm an actor. I've done acting, filming. But who I am is a stand-up comedian. I really believe that's what I was born to be. You know, the first time I ever, I wandered aimlessly all my life. The first time I went on stage and with a joke that I had written, got a laugh, it was like the dark clouds open up in a B movie, you know, where the sun burst through and my whole being went, oh, yeah, this is what I want to do. I want to be a stand-up comedian. The thought that you can make a living making people laugh overwhelmed me, you know, and, and that when, you, when that happens to anybody in any endeavor, <clears throat> then you know why you're here. I remember years ago reading a book about, it's an old Irish proverb or something, that the second you come out of the womb, God whispers in your ear what it is he wants you to do, and you search the rest of your life for that whisper. And when you find it, the wind gets at your back for the rest of your life. And that's what happened to me. You know, uh, uh, I, I, that's, There's something about writing funny material and doing it that same night, and it gets a laugh. You know, artists... And, and comedy is an art form. Artists sometimes don't know that they're successful until after they die. People buy their paintings. We can find out that night, you know, when we 
we create our art, you know. It's, it's, it's just, I, 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 I wrote a poem, and I'm not going to do it for you. Years ago, I wrote a poem called The Sound of Laughter. And the opening line is, as far back as I can remember, or shortly thereafter, I love to hear the sound of laughter. And it goes on and on the poem. And that's, I, to this day, I can, you know, I don't throw up before I go on stage. I don't gag and puke, and I don't go through all the, you know, the machinations. I love making people laugh. I can hardly wait to get out there every night. Tom, thank you so much. Uh, I love the book. Uh, both times I read it, and it's been so great to, to have a chance to talk with you here today. I hope we can do it again. Anytime you want to. Anytime. You give me a call, too. Man, that was fun. The great Tom Dreesen. Wonderful storyteller. His book is terrific. Still Standing, My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage and Sinatra. And, and he says it himself. You, who could have imagined your, your shining shoes in a tavern in Harvey, Illinois, listening to Sinatra on the jukebox? And then years later, you're flying on that private jet to spend the weekend at Frank's house. It's an amazing journey. And uh, what, what he said about finding that spark you know, that, that spark that is what you're meant to do. Yeah. And then it's just a breeze at your back after that. And, and he has ridden that uh, so, so well. And, man, his, his stand-up, just so brilliant. Oh, yeah, he just so consistently good. Uh, you know, keeps it pretty family-oriented mm -hmm. as well. And uh, just a great guy. We had a blast talking with the great Tom Dreesen here on Downtown, the podcast. Thanks for joining us this week. We're brought to you, as always, by Cross Insurance. For Kerry Haskell, I'm Rich Kimball. See you next time on Downtown.